0: Thanks for listening to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. My name's William, and I'm the Executive Director here at DCC. DCC is located in downtown Tallahassee, and our heart is to reach the city through loving God, making disciples, and being great neighbors. We recently launched a new building campaign called Building Opportunities. Over the years, we've seen God do some incredible things, and we're excited about this next step we're taking as a church. To learn more about the building campaign and to see how you can be a part visit downtowncommunitychurch.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's sermon. We are in a uh, series uh, about the book of Nehemiah. Uh, If you're not familiar with the book of Nehemiah, that's okay. We're going to get you caught up this morning. Um, Nehemiah is a book that's in the Old Testament. Nehemiah honestly isn't talked about a ton. In fact, nobody in the New Testament refers to Nehemiah. But the book of Nehemiah is essentially about a guy who builds a wall, a guy who builds a wall. I and mean, I know everyone's thinking, man, that's just so compelling, you know, man, tell me, you know, and then he, he did what with the next brick and he did, you know, holy cow, you know, how do we dig ditches? How do we build walls? I'm so glad I showed up on Sunday. The reason that we decided to spend almost the entire summer going through the book of Nehemiah is real simple. It's because what Nehemiah did um, was build a wall, which wasn't inherently spiritual. There's nothing sp- super spiritual about you know, putting another you know, rock on another stone, on another pebble, or you know, however they, they, they put the wall together. There's nothing specifically spiritual about that, except for the fact that it had incredibly spiritual implications. And the importance behind that are where most of us enter the story and this whole idea is that for our lives, very few are called to go to expressly spiritual um, things to do with our life. Very few of us are called to actually go be missionaries, though some of us are. Very few of us are called to go be pastors, though some of us are. Very few of us are called to go be, you know, whatever it is, you know, a Christian counselor or a Christian therapist. Very few of us are called, you know, to be in one specific type of ministry for our entire life. The majority of us, and nothing, you know, against the fact that, that perhaps you are, but the majority of us are called, into what I would say is, the real world. Most of us are called into things that people would look from the outside in and say, there is nothing expressly spiritual about what you're doing. Most of us are called to be teachers, are called to be doctors, are called to be bankers, are called to, you know, work with insurance agencies. Many of us are called to families. Many of us are called to be therapists. Many of us are called out, which will, you know, the church would title the secular world, which I just call the real world. That is to say that most of us, when you look at the future of your life, does not have an expressly spiritual connotation to it, which means that someone who is a Christian or isn't a Christian could both do. But what happened with Nehemiah is his calling fulfilled, his burden fulfilled to build this wall around Jerusalem had, again, incredibly spiritual connotations and implications for the people of God. And here's where that's important. Because what we don't believe is that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world to die for us so that we could live mediocre lives. What we don't believe is that God gave His one and only Son for us to exist in the world so that we could live in normalcy, in mediocrity, just kind of punch the time clock in you know, on your way into work, you know, punch it out on your way out from work, you know, cook some dinner for the kids, kiss everybody goodnight and go to bed. What we believe is that God has given each one of us who is a Christian something to do that's meaningful for the kingdom of God here in our short time on planet Earth. And so what we want to do with this aim of this whole summer is as we travel through the book of Nehemiah to understand, one, what is it that God has called me to do? That's like the big question. In fact, we ask that question in about ten different ways, and you know, depending on your level of spirituality, so, you know, some of it's just, I don't know what God wants me to do. For those of you who are a little farther along, maybe in fact you say, you faith, you say, you know, what is God's will for my life? It's like this mystical will for my life. What is God's will for my life? In fact, my, like my entire life, you want God to tell them you know, what your will is, you know, what his will is for like 50 years down the road. But for some of us, you know, it's, a, it's an obvious. What is God's will for my life right now? I've got a major to pick. I've got a career to pick. I've got a husband to pick or I've got a wife to pick. And so I want to know. What is it that God has given me to do here on planet Earth? And then we want to help uncover and realize how exactly that works out and that plays out. Because here's here's what we know is true. Many people feel a burden. Many people feel a calling to do something significant. Many, many people feel like they want their lives to count for something more than normalcy. But very few people do it. In fact, when you think about your life, when you think about the people you know, you know tons of people, but if I was to say, give me three people, give me three people whose life carried incredible significance, there's a good chance that you could name those three people, and those three people may or may not be pastors, those people may or may not be someone of spiritual significance, but all of us can think about three people who had incredible significance and incredible weight and impact to their life. In a sea of people, in a world of billions of people, there are only a few who feel the burden, who feel the call, who understand the will of God on their life and follow through with it. And we just think, wouldn't it be incredible if there was an entire church who understood how to feel the call of God on their life and then actually knew what to do with that call? So we want to spend the entire summer Piece by piece, talking about how do, you, how do you understand, and then furthermore, how do you go forward with that? Now, we picked up, picked up in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, where Nehemiah is in the capital. Nehemiah, a lot of backstories happened at this point, but Nehemiah is in the capital of the Persian Empire. Many of you, again, you're familiar with history, you know, kind of the all-before-Christ, BC area. There was this nation called Israel. They were God's chosen people. Bunch of stuff had happened, and eventually there was kind of this Babylonian group who was on the world market. I mean, they were the number one. They were the top dogs in the world. The Babylonians came and dominated You know, the, the, the Israelites. The Babylonians were smart because they knew if we leave everybody in their same place, they're going to revolt because the, you know the city of Jerusalem specifically was notorious for revolting against whoever dominated over them. And so they got all the people from everywhere they conquered, and the Babylonians would just export everybody just send them into exile all of them just place them in different places all over of the babylonian empire well a while later about 70 years later in fact the persians came and defeated the babylonians when the persians came and defeated the babylonians there was this guy named cyrus so many of you read in your history classes and cyrus basically made this decree anybody and everybody can go home and so many of the people of the many of the israelite people many of the jewish people went back to jerusalem and went back to judah specifically and in that, when they got there, what they realized is the temple had been destroyed. In fact, the city had been destroyed. And beyond that, the walls of the city had been, de- been destroyed. And so through a couple you know, times and a couple trials, the, the temple got rebuilt. And as the temple got rebuilt, they thought about building the city. But the problem with building the city is the city needed walls. And we've said this the last couple of weeks in a row. The reason walls are so significant isn't because it's like, man, we just want a pretty fence around our our town. You know, man, I just, you know, white picket, tall fence. In fact, our neighbor just built a fence, you know, right next door to us, and I think that means something about our family, you know. We're we're trying to figure that out, but... It's not they just wanted this cool fence. That was their first line of defense. If you were a city without walls, then you were just open to anything and everything. Again, this is like the equivalent of you getting all your most valuable belongings, going and getting the nicest car you can possibly afford. I mean, you know, just, you know, spending and spending and spending, Get this, you know, incredible car, and then going and park it in the worst neighborhood in town, put all your stuff there, leave the windows down, and say, I'll see it in two months. It's like, well, good luck, you know. You might not have your iPad at the end of two months. You might not have the cash you left on your seat at the end of two months. It just didn't make sense to build a city without a wall. And so about 90 years after Cyrus says, you can all go home, Nehemiah gets word that the city still has no walls. And Nehemiah's heart is broken. In fact, Nehemiah spends the next four months to what we're about to pick up to, praying and fasting And praying and fasting and praying and fasting and praying and fasting and day after day after day after day after day praying and fasting and praying and fasting. And here's the significance of that. For most of us, God calls us like God called Nehemiah. When God said, Nehemiah, I want you to go build a wall. Uh, Most times when we read the Bible, you know, it's like you have this calling that somebody hears from God, and it's like this angel came down, and God spoke audibly, and the seas parted, and everybody said, I'm not worthy, you know. (laughs) That hasn't happened to me yet. And oftentimes we read the Bible, it's this super spiritual revelatory moment. But in Nehemiah, God calls him through a broken heart. God breaks his heart for the thing that he's called to do. And for most of us, the reality is, God doesn't call us by sending an angel down. God doesn't call us by speaking audibly. He may and he could if he wanted to. But for the majority of us, in fact, I would say almost all of us, if not all of us, the way God speaks to us in calling is simple. It's through a burdened and broken heart. What is it that burdens you? What is it that breaks your heart? What is it that when you see being not done? What is it when you see people not engaging? Or what, if, what is it when you see people not doing correctly? It, it I mean, it just bugs you to death. It burdens you to death. You wake up thinking about it. You've designed your life around this. And again, maybe you're in the banking world. Maybe you're in the finance world. Maybe you're taking a major to go into that world. And what drives you crazy is the fact that you see over and over and over and over and over and over again people putting themselves in poor financial situations, people putting themselves in poor financial situations, and it drives you into the finance department, it drives you into the banking world, it drives you into whatever it drives you into because you just have a passion for seeing people see financial freedom in their life. Perhaps it's because you see sick people who walk into an office and they just have no clue of what they need and they have never understood the clear options for the particular type of diagnosis, a particular type of help and you're passionate to help people get the medical attention they need I mean, come on. There's a thousand different ways. Maybe you're just a Chick-fil-A manager. That's not just a Chick-fil-A manager, by the way. If you're a Chick-fil-A manager in here, I would love to talk to you afterwards because you probably have like a a handful of little coupons that you could give. So maybe you're a Chick-fil-A manager and man, the most spiritual thing you do all day is you see hundreds of people walk through your door and I would say thousands because that's probably true because Chick-fil-A is the best fast food in America. But you see thousands of people walk through your door every single day and your goal in life is you know everyone's going through something and so your purpose, your call, in life is to make just massive amounts of people's lives a little bit better as you hand them a Polynesian sauce and say, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. Oh, yes, sir. My pleasure. Oh, you want 55 napkins? My pleasure. Oh, you want how many? You know, we're Chick-fil-A, so we're smarter. We don't just give you one ketchup packet. We give you a plethora of ketchup packets. My pleasure. Now, maybe that's your calling in life. But whatever it is, you have a calling. You have something that God has given you a passion and a burden for. And how God speaks to most of us is through a passion and burden. So when something bugs you, pay attention to what that is. Because that may in fact be the calling of God on your life. And so Nehemiah spends four months fasting and praying and fasting and praying about this burden that God has given him. Until we pick up in chapter two, verse one, where Nehemiah begins to respond to the burden that God, to the passion that God, to the work that God has called him to do with his life. If you got your Bible, you can open up. Not going to be on the screen. Chapter two, verse one. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes. Now it kind of says that date again. We we talked about that last week. How that 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 compares to chapter 1, verse 1, where he talks about a different month. There's about a four-month period. So this happens about four months after the time that Nehemiah first felt burdened. When wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, important detail to know in the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a Jewish boy or an Israelite man in the court or in the presence of the king of Persia. Now, again, the Persians were the world power. And so Nehemiah has a relationship with the most powerful man in the world. In their system, there was no checks, there was no balances, there was only the king. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, which meant that Nehemiah was the guy who every day when the king would drink his wine, would basically pour the king's wine and taste the king's wine, because everyone knew one of the easiest ways to take out a king is you give him wine that's poisoned. And so Nehemiah would basically be the guy who would be the first line of defense of taking a bullet for the king if anybody wanted to kill the king. And so Nehemiah and the king at this point have an incredibly close relationship, if nothing else, an incredibly dependent relationship. And Nehemiah shows up this one particular day after he spends months praying. And in fact, he says at the end of chapter 1, And grant your servant success in the eyes or with this man give him favor because I'm about to go talk to the king so Nehemiah shows up says one day he's in his courts pours the wine I took the wine and gave it to the king and now I had not been sad in his presence in verse 2 and the king said to me why is your face sad seeing you are not sick this is nothing but sadness of heart And I, he said, was very much afraid. Now, there's a reason why Nehemiah is afraid. In fact, a compelling reason why Nehemiah is afraid. And the reason why Nehemiah is afraid isn't because Nehemiah is like, oh my gosh, you know, I've just been thinking about this and praying about this for so long. And what if he says no? Oh my gosh, woe is me. The reason why Nehemiah was afraid is because you weren't allowed to be sad in the king's presence. You weren't allowed to have any kind of real emotion of negativity. You weren't allowed to mourn in the king's presence. If something big had just happened to you, you weren't allowed to be any kind of negative you know, emotion, impact, thought process in the king's presence in fact if you were to go over the book of esther in fact esther is kind of contemporaries with nehemiah if you read through esther esther is about as a a book after nehemiah but it kind of precedes nehemiah and there's this guy named mordecai who a bunch of stuff happened in the book of esther but mordecai eventually finds out that all of the people of the israelites the king the persian king at this point wants to kill and so Nehemiah, or Mordecai, in the book of Esther, basically puts on these sackcloth and ashes, which was a huge sign of mourning. And as it says in Esther 4.2, that basically you weren't allowed, not only in the king's presence, you weren't allowed in the king's gates. You weren't even allowed past the White House fence if you were mourning. And here Nehemiah is, face to face with the king. And the king can tell something's wrong. Now, kind of read between the lines and understand the context of this. I want you to imagine the guy who's responsible for keeping you alive is sad. I want you to imagine the guy who just poured you some some wine and hands you the wine is sad. The natural thought would be, is he going to kill me? Because there's this guy who knows he's not allowed to be sad. There's this guy who just handed me wine. And everyone, you know, there's there's plenty of people, there's plenty of enemies that every king had. And so part of what a lot of scholars, a lot of people will look into and say, the reason why the king was so attentive to Nehemiah is because the king was so incredibly dependent on Nehemiah. And you didn't want the guy who was dependent on your life having something wrong with him. Because it's like, hey, before I drink this wine, you're acting like a weirdo today, bud. What's going on? So so the, the king stops and says, what's going on? This is nothing but sadness of heart. He was afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Oh, In other king, let me just tell you. Number one. We're good, right? We're boys. So, you know, I like you a lot. I'm not trying to kill you. You know how this is. Like, your boss calls you in the office and wants to have a conversation. And you're like, first off, before we get into the fact that I was late, you know, 35th time in a row, you know, I just want you to know you're the best boss in the world. You know, you should be the boss of everybody. You know, let the king live forever. Now, again, we read the Bible. The funny part about the Bible is the Bible is honest and real. This is how we react when we're confronted with someone who's way more powerful than us and can hand on lots of consequences with us. We, you know, first sentence, hey, let me just suck up for a little bit which, by the way, isn't an unspiritual move. You should probably do that. In fact, go to your boss, someone, and say, Boss, you're just the best boss ever. I don't want anything. you're just the best boss ever. Just a little work tip. Anyways, I said to the king, Let the king live forever. And why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, here's the principle. That we're gonna understand this morning. At some point, at some point, your burden will require boldness. At some point, your burden will require boldness. At some point, the call of God on your life will require boldness. At some point, it's gonna have to go from a thought, it's gonna have to go from a burden. It's going to have to go from something that you feel like should be done and you feel like ought to be done. It's going to have to go from something that you've prayed about and you've prayed about and you've prayed about and you've fasted about and you've fasted about and and you've fasted about. At some point, this burden will require boldness. And the problem for many of us, as it relates to doing the work that God has called us to do, if I can just be honest, is that very few of us ever get started... Because very few of us ever have the boldness that it takes to take the first step. Nehemiah had prayed, Nehemiah had spent months of praying. Nehemiah had fasted. Nehemiah had spent months of fasting. and In fact, Nehemiah was afraid. And the great news in the fact that Nehemiah is afraid is the fact that when you sit there on the edge of doing whatever God has called you to do, and you're looking at the first step, and there's something inside of you that your heart's beating up really fast, and you don't know if it's going to work or not, and you're about to tell somebody the news, you're about to tell somebody the plan, you're about to tell somebody what God's called you to do for the very first time, you don't know if they're going to be like, man, that's a fantastic idea, or they're going to look at you and say, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. Life. you should not do that god is not calling you to that you have no clue what's about to happen but at some point your burden will require boldness in your season of prayer in your season of fasting will begin to develop the passion and the burden inside of you to take that first step of boldness in light of your fears and frankly in light of your insecurities Because if we're being honest, fear is kind of the blanket word. But if we were to drill down to our experience, the reality is for most of us, the reason the reason why we don't take steps forward to what God's called us to do is because we're insecure. Because everyone's got insecurities. And you know, you. And chances are the person you're talking to, or the group that you're talking to, Knows you as well. And everyone has insecurities. And over 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 over again, the people of God don't step into the calling of God because they don't have the boldness that God has given them because they're insecure about who they are. This is why. This is why over and over in church world, there's people who are called and people who are equipped To do all kinds of ministry. People who are called and people who are equipped to lead groups. To lead Bible studies. To lead community groups. People who are called and people who are equipped to lead ministries out in the community. People who are called and people who are equipped to go start their own thing. Not like everything has to happen and funnel through the church. But God's called you to do your own thing within the church. God's called you to start a Bible study perhaps at your workplace. God's called you to pray for patients before they come in. God's called you to do whatever God has called you to do. But for many of us, it's our own personal insecurities because of our awareness of our own insufficiencies that keep us from stepping in to the calling of God. But let me tell you, if you are ever going to accomplish the work that God has called you to do, you are going to step out in the realization that I am insufficient and I am insecure. Let me just pause before we continue on. The incredible part about this is sometimes we stand on the precipice wanting to step into our insecurities, wanting to step into our insufficiencies. And thinking that perhaps because we're not good enough, because we're not smart enough, because we're not wise enough, because we're not spiritual enough, because we're not far enough along, we can't do what God's called us to do. And here is the realization of the gospel that I will never be smart enough, I will never be spiritual enough, I will never be holy enough, I will never be pure enough, and I will never be good enough. And the fact that I will never be any of those things is the exact reason why God sent his one and only son into the world. Because I will never be good enough, I will never be strong enough, I will never be smart enough, I will never be spiritual enough or holy enough that I should stand in front of a group of people and open up God's word, which is perfection, and say, hey everybody, let's do this. I'm not that spiritual. But God has called me in the midst of my insignificance, in the midst of my insecurities, in the midst of my insufficiencies to realize that we serve an all-sufficient, all-superior God. And the beautiful thing is when you realize that, you realize that in spite of your insufficiencies, His sufficiency is what makes things work. So when things work, He's the one that gets the credit. See, I can get up here and speak my heart out. But ultimately, I am a sinner at best. The fact that anybody grows here, the fact that anybody comes to Jesus here, the fact that anybody comes to the point... let I me mean, come on. The fact that anybody in their right mind... Would look at a document thousands of years old to a savior thousands of years old and say, "I'm going to place my entire hope and trust for the salvation of my soul in a guy who died thousands of years ago." It is an incredible miracle that let me tell you, I'm persuasive. I can talk you into buying sausage. By the way, I run a meat company, so that's I realized halfway into that sentence that might be a little bit weird, but. In the meat company, I can talk you into carrying a new product. I can tear you, carry you, man, we're working on this new jalapeno cheddar sausage. It's the best thing since sliced bread. In fact, it's better than sliced bread. I mean, I can talk you into carrying a new product on your shelf. I cannot talk you into placing your faith, hope, and trust in a guy who died thousands of years ago. I am insufficient for the task. But God has called me to lean into a God who is sufficient. In fact, Nehemiah takes another step in boldness. Then the king said to me, verse four. He said, "What are you requesting?" <laughs> so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now this is, this is important. Nehemiah constantly balances this idea of pragmatism and prayer. Pragmatism, I mean, he's just so 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 practical, 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 and praise and praise and praise and praise and praise. And, and Nehemiah says, "Okay, being sad was one thing." But now the king wants to know what I do. And he hasn't even said, oh my gosh, Nehemiah, you're right. How could that happen? Nehemiah, we ought to do something about it. Nehemiah sad and says, how can I not be sad? And the king says, so what do you want from me? So why are you sad in my presence, essentially? So he prays. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah... To the city of my father's grave, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let the letter be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make him beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. Now, this might not seem like a a huge ask to us, because again, we're kind of reading this, trying to understand the context and the culture. But if I could help you to understand how big of a question, I mean, how much humility and boldness that this took from Nehemiah. Nehemiah is asking a king, king, I not only want you to give me a year off, I want you to pay for the entire thing. And I want you to give me a letter so that anybody who comes up against me, I can show them my letter to the king and I can just basically do whatever I want with the king's authority. Now, in their culture, what they knew, what the people who were originally reading this book knew was that Nehemiah, in fact, the city of Jerusalem, was notorious for rebelling against the king, rebelling against the king, rebelling against the king. In fact, before, after Cyrus made this decree, everybody can go back, a bunch of the neighbors to one of the king, a couple of kings later, wrote a letter to the king and basically said, King, you know that Jerusalem is notorious for rebelling. And if I were you king, then I would tell them to stop working. King goes and looks up and says, you know what? They're right. These people are incredibly rebellious. Everybody stop the work. A little while longer, some other people wrote a note that says, hey, 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 Cyrus said we can do this. Can we please, please, please do this? And the king said, basically, okay, you can go back to building your temple. And in the middle of this, Nehemiah asks the king to finance, to fund, and for time off to do what God has called him to do, to build the walls, which would be the first line of defense for a city that is notoriously rebellious against any king, because they had this crazy thought that God had promised them that their king would be from the line of David, that their king would be from the line of David, and so their idea and their thought was no king besides a king from the line of David ought to sit on the throne and rule over us, and we'll rebel against anybody, we'll revolt against anybody to do that. And Nehemiah looks this king in the eye and says, king, I want you to send me and I want you to pay for it. Now, I know it doesn't make sense, but I feel like this is the call of God on my life. And you know what's incredible about Nehemiah? You know what my favorite part about Nehemiah is? Nehemiah, that there's no incredible miracles, that there's no, you know, this, oh my gosh, and then, you know, a, an earthquake hit and shook the palace, and the king said, I better let you go. You know, a lightning bolt came down. An angel sang. It was that Nehemiah had a request. And he requested to the king. And the king said yes. And Nehemiah attributed the entire thing to God. And here's the beautiful part about Nehemiah. Here's the kind of the the fill-in-the-puzzle part about Nehemiah. As Nehemiah spent four months fasting and four months praying, and fasting, and praying, and fasting, and praying, and fasting, and praying. Nehemiah had a plan. Nehemiah had a plan. When the king asked him, what do you need from me? Nehemiah knew exactly what it needed from him. And let me just tell you, I normally try to have like one point for a sermon, and it almost bugs me the fact that I'm bringing up a second point. But we just can't miss this. That Nehemiah had boldness and he had a plan. In the middle of his boldness, in the middle of his, you know, this is what I want to do, this is where I want to go, this is the burden. He had a plan. For many of us, we feel a burden and we want to go go out in boldness. And if someone ever asks, so how are you going to do it? What do you need? He's like, I don't know. In fact, this is how we say it in the Christian world. You know, I don't know, but I just want to go love people. It's like, great. Well, you can do that walking down the street. How much money do you need? How much time do you need? You feel a burden for this people group. You feel a burden for people in this particular situation. You feel a burden and a passion and a calling for whatever it is that you feel about a burden and passion for calling for. You feel a burden for kids on the south side. You feel a burden for people in marginalized situations. You feel a burden for college students. You feel a burden for people in the marketplace. I mean, whatever it is you feel a, call a burden for. So what's it going to take? What's your plan? Because a burden is great and boldness is great, but boldness and burden without a plan are oftentimes falling short of a successful mission. To God. And the fact that you plan doesn't mean that God wasn't a part of it. It means that God was a part of the process. And at the end of the day, you are still an insufficient sinner who ultimately doesn't have the strength and power to pull off even the best plan. So let me ask you this. Perhaps you've been here for the last couple of weeks. And you feel a burden. You feel this burden that you've just been thinking about and thinking about and you've been praying about and praying about. And when I talk about boldness, that kind of gets you excited because you're thinking, man, I want to do something. I want to do something. I want to do something. If you cast a vision for what you felt like God called you to do, would you know right now what you needed to pull it off? Because let me tell you, when you have a burden from God, have the boldness that God's called you into, and have a plan for what God's called you to do, you become part of a category that's available for God to bless. You know what that category is? Diligence. 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 For many Christians, the reason we live mediocre lives is not because we don't feel a calling, because oh my gosh, we feel callings every day. It's not because we don't feel bold all the time, because sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. It's because very few of us feel a burden, have a boldness, and have a plan to do what God's called you to do. Now, let me just kind of end by saying this. The ultimate example of this entire thing was Jesus, who came to the earth and lived a bold life. And by the way, that bold life took many different forms. When we say boldness, oftentimes we hear that and we think, okay, I got to go, you know, shake my neighbor and say, believe in Jesus. Sometimes Jesus' boldness was to turn over tables in the temple. And sometimes it was a statement for Pilate and Herod and not say a single word. That was probably the boldest act when he could have talked his way out of the cross and he decided to say nothing. Saying nothing is sometimes the boldest thing that you can do. And I don't mean as like an out, like the St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, sometimes use words, you know, feed hungry people at all times, sometimes, you know, use food. That's ridiculous. You know, okay, it's going to take words sometimes. It's going to take food. It's going to take something. But here's the deal. In light of all of that, Jesus stood and said nothing. As Philippians 2 would go back and say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew what was coming. He knew it was on the other side and he endured what he had to because he knew that this was the calling of God on, on, on his life. He sat there the night before he was crucified, the night before he would take the sins of the world on his very own shoulders. And he would say, God, I know what your calling requires of me and if there's any way to let this cup pass, please, please, please let it pass. But your will be done not mine he knew exactly what it would cost him exactly what it would take and was bold in the appropriate ways so here's the question here's the question what has god called you to do what has god called you to do and how incredible would it be if we as christians understood the calling of god on our lives Stepped into that calling with boldness. And when we stepped into the boldness, we didn't step in boldly, unprepared. We stepped in boldly, fully prepared, knowing the cost of what God, of what this calling, of what this burden would require us. When you do that, you are diligent. And your diligence and your faithfulness will be seen. Heard and rewarded by God. There's a ton of parables that I'm tempted to go into. We're just going to end with that. So I just want you to think. What's God called you to? Have you spent adequate time in prayer? Are you prepared to be bold? Do you have a plan that if that boldness works, you'll know what to do? And if you do, you are on the precipice of living into the calling, living into the extraordinary calling, doing something so significant that few other people have the opportunity and the ability.